Hello, and welcome to the 905er. I am Joel McLeod. And I'm Roland Tana. This is our second part of our deep dive into Hamilton City politics. More specifically, the stuff that's wrong with Hamilton City politics. In part one, we spoke with Cameron Kretsch, the current chair of the City of Hamilton's LGBTQ Advisory Committee, and his ongoing ordeal with the City's Integrity Commissioner. If you haven't already listened to that episode, we highly recommend you do so now. It will provide you with badly needed background information, as well as his perspective on the matter at large. In this episode, we speak with Joey Coleman. Joey is a crowdfunded publisher and editor of the publicrecord.ca, an online publication focusing exclusively on Hamilton City Council politics. We spoke with him to get his expert analysis of this issue and what it says about the City Council's behavior towards Hamiltonians as a whole. Here it is. We're going to devote this episode to a bit of an, an analysis and an investigation a bit into what's been going on uh, with this particular story surrounding the Integrity Commissioner. Uh, and in light of that, we'd like to welcome our special guest uh, for this conversation. Joey Coleman is a publisher and reporter who publishes on thepublicrecord.ca. He covers exclusively Hamilton City Council and the business that goes on there. Uh, and he has been writing a bit about this uh, whole process from the get-go. And we'd like to uh, welcome him to the podcast today. Thank you very much, Joey. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, I think let's start off with, I think we, we can safely say that this is not above par or above board procedure for city council to go after a volunteer in this manner. Is that safe to say? As I wrote, this was an illegal investigation. Uh, it has violated the Municipal Act. It has violated common law. And based upon the integrity commissioner making new out accusations during the council meeting, it actually violates natural justice as well. Yeah, I just want to point everybody, anybody who hasn't checked out the public record.ca already on this issue, really should do so because Joey's done a number of really outstanding pieces looking at the ins and outs of this issue between the Municipal Act and the bylaws of the city itself. It can get pretty complicated for people to understand. But if you were to kind of explain in a few words to someone coming to this for the first time, can you explain why what has happened is not fair? Fairness has fairness is an interesting concept. Um, it's, it's subjective. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, actually just explain why this isn't right. That's a much better way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> Integrity commissioners were brought in to the Municipal Act after the Toronto Computer Leasing Inquiry. And that was two inquiries merged into one dealing with municipal corruption. The purpose of integrity commissioners is to address municipal corruption. And we often make the mistake of thinking of corruption in the criminal sense. But when we think about it in the sense of politics, corruption is violating laws, violating norms, not acting up to the code of conduct. So integrity commissioners were designed to address municipal corruption. And one of the things that we often say is, well, why didn't the law predict this type of scenario? The laws, laws cannot be overly prescriptive. Statutes, regulations are where we get a little bit more prescriptive. So the integrity commissioners, the failsafe is that it states very clearly that integrity commissioners can only investigate members of council and members of local boards. 
and local boards are defined in the Municipal Act. And rather than read the, the technical um, legalese, the sum of it is, is that there are, there's a four-part test for local boards. And they have to be exercising power of the municipality. They, they have to have autonomy. Those are two of them. They have to have power and autonomy are the key ones here. Um, in this particular case, in fact, the integrity commissioner, as I note, uh, says in paragraph 20 that they have no power and 21, they have no autonomy. So de facto, the integrity commissioner has found that they're not a local board. And thus, the integrity commissioner lacks jurisdiction. This was the safeguard against integrity commissioners being used for political means by politicians. So, and this is a really important point because a board, I mean, people may be familiar with things like the police services boards. Boards have significant budgets. They have significant power. They are delegated jobs that really make an impact in a municipality. An advisory committee for everybody, anybody who's been on one is exactly that, is advisory at best. <laughs> and it's lucky often if that advice uh, gets much of a hearing, but they have generally extremely low budgets. I mean, it depends on the exact advisory committee. These are volunteer organizations. People often do them Again, depends on the committee. I know in Burlington, people do them almost as a, you know, a gesture of goodwill of wanting to give back to the city. These are very different from the police services board. Correct. And so it's, I mean, really what we have is a council which is lashing out at everyone, that's lashing out at accountability, that has been escalating their behavior for the last six years. Um, some of your listeners may be aware that I was assaulted by the police board chair in February of 2014 because the chair was upset that I was bringing video cameras into public meetings and felt that I was unfairly targeting a committee he chaired. As a city councillor, he chaired the Accountability and Transparency Committee. And he felt that I was unfairly targeting it to be accountable and transparent based upon its name. To which I say, yes, I that was not unfair. Yes, out of the 165 committees, subcommittees, boards, and agencies that existed at the time that would not put their minutes or agendas online, yes, I focused on the Accountability and Transparency Committee as the first one that I felt should be accountable and transparent. <laughs> um, and yeah. only if I continued to do so that there would be consequences, and he decided to assault me. And he also oversaw the Integrity Commissioner as Accountability and Transparency Chair. So the Integrity Commissioner took a year to investigate and found that well, unfortunately, the video was preserved. That was one of his concerns, was why was the video preserved? Because, well, Mr. Coleman asked for it to be preserved. Um, and the city destroyed the video afterwards and never released it to the public. They released this weird edited version. And he said, well, unfortunately, the he didn't say unfortunately. He said, well, the video shows conclusively that he made contact with Mr. Coleman. He should not have done so. That's a violation of the Code of Conduct. But Mr. Ferguson had said that it had been a long day and therefore, there'll be no reprimand or consequence. Um, and the integrity commissioner said, and then I have to investigate, was Mr. Coleman encouraging people to file complaints about this? And then he did this weird accusations against me, never spoke to me once, and then afterwards did media interviews where said, I think Mr. Coleman has a nefarious agenda. So we've had this problem ongoing. What is the key difference here? And my situation, while absurd, is very different than Cameron's because 
what they've done here is they've investigated Cameron, intentionally changed the rules, mm-hmm. violated the Municipal Act, ignored the Municipal Act, and then to make it even worse, like what Cameron put up, th- we could have a debate about naming the title of an individual who is not a public official. And I don't want to get into that because it's not relevant because reasonable people can disagree whether naming an IT anal- analyst which can clearly be identified as the individual who was the last known leader of a white supremacist organization who says that they have more to do with them, but was in a sensitive position. We could debate if that was proper or not. That's not for the integrity commissioner to decide. Let's be clear that there's other mechanisms to go at that. But to make it worse was that the city had published that information with names. Right. The city had it up on her website. So, even there where we're talking about the the issue, and I put that in air quotes, the city has done away with my election. I, I want to bring up the fact that shortly after city council had their meeting on this matter, Councillor Terry Whitehead then took to Twitter asking if the integrity commissioner does have the, the authority to go after HCCI, if I believe is the correct acronym. To me, it was, there's a subtle signaling to various community groups to various citizens that, you know what, if we don't like what you have to say, we're not going to use our integrity commissioner to come after you. Reading between the lines, that's what I, I got off that tweet, which is a very threatening message to come from a city councillor to the average citizen. Well, what's actually worse is that he adds on to it, that we're just beginning to explore what we can do with the integrity commissioner. Right. Um, and so this is one of those situations getting back to, because a lot of people have asked, well, how could this happen? Why is the province not intervening? Why, why, why? When the province creates this, they say very clearly it can only investigate members of council and local boards. Getting back to the local boards, that is a definition that is narrowly defined in law. They must be autonomous and have power. Um, So from a point of view of law, the integrity commission of the province has done what it needed to do, which is they set this up and... They'll refine in regulation and they'll wait for the courts to provide some guidance in terms of how integrity commissioners should work. And that's how we prefer our laws to be done, which is set up the boundaries and then as cases move forward, as events occur, modify as needed. But what's happened is that the city of Hamilton has decided to go past every single safeguard. So you have a city clerk who decides, notwithstanding the law, I'm going to say, yeah, let's send the integrity commissioner after a citizen. Mm-hmm. You have a city sitter who appears to go along with this. Remember that they did all of this in closed session and in secret, right. which our council goes into closed session more than any other council. Um, they just do everything that they possibly think they could get away with in closed session. And so you have a city clerk, you have a city solicitor who both seem to go along with this. Then you have an integrity commissioner who openly says that they they have a different view than what they call the common view of what an integrity commissioner could be. So you have an, you have integrity commissioners who decide to go ahead and do this anyway. And paragraph three, so if you read, and I'm going to have this up on the public record so that you can see other integrity commissioner reports that are written by people who take this role seriously, professionally, and follow the Municipal Act. Paragraph three, you have an advisory committee as a local board to which the code of conduct and oversight by the integrity commissioner could apply. That's all they say. 
they're actually required in a quasi-judicial report to explain how it's a local board. They're required to explain why they have jurisdictions. So when you look at other integrity commission reports, it'll say section 223 of the municipal act states. I am the integrity commissioner, boom. And then it would have a it would have an explanation of why it's a local board. In this case, it's not a local board. So I can't even give you a scenario where they could actually claim it was a local board because when we go to paragraph 20 and 21 of their findings, they state that actually part of the reason they're punishing Cameron Crutch is that he acted as if he had power and autonomy when he does not. And in fact, at paragraphs 42, 46, 52, 90, 91, 96, 97, and 98 of their report, and I put that in quotations, it is a report, but I don't want people to confuse it with a proper quasi-judicial report. The Atwood Bukowski and Abrams, so Janice Atwood Bukowski, the former city solicitor, and Jeffrey Abrams, the former city clerk in Vaughan, who are the integrity commissioners, state the advisory committee has neither autonomy nor any ability to exercise any with respect to the affairs of the municipality. So turning back to where this starts, could the Legislative Assembly of Ontario ever foresee a scenario where a city council, one, a city clerk, two, a city solicitor, three, and integrity commissioners, four, all decide to just ignore the law and barrel ahead towards a conceived outcome, which is they want to Punish is not the right word. They want to embarrass Cameron Crutch. They're going off to Cameron Crutch because of other motivations. The alleged MFIPA violation, which may or may not be a violation, that's paragraph, that's the paragraph one of the LGBTQ censored minutes. Um is it doesn't belong in this format. The second one where the city clerk claims, and this gets to the hypocrisy, and that's there's no other word. These are not contradictions. This is just flat-out hypocrisy. Claims that naming Fred Benick, the citizen appointee to the Hamilton Police Services Board, is a vile, not even naming him by name, but referring to him by title of being on the police board, mm -hmm. is violating his privacy. So... And this is where Andrea Holland, the city clerk, does not explain herself. How is it that the chair of the LGBTQ advisory committee is deemed to be a public official and have no privacy rights, but the member of the police services board is a not a private, not a public official, despite the fact that as a police service board member, the Police Services Act requires him to swear an oath of public office. Everything that defines a public official exists on the police board. And right. just, I don't even think I need to go into the law of this to say advisory in the title versus board in the title. And the city saying that the advisory committee is a local board, but trying to argue that the police services board members are not, it's absolutely hypocrisy in order to get to a preconceived outcome. Well, we've seen the tweet, the uncensored tweet that Cameron posted, and I, I have to admit, I don't see anything identifying unless you do research to go into it. There's no personal identification, no social security numbers, no address, no phone numbers, nothing that would identify somebody. There's not even a name. It's a vague description, to your point there. So getting to the part about the IT, the person in IT. So MFIPA, so 
when you said that somebody by research could figure out that it is the individual, well, that is actually a thing in MFIPA that they cannot release to me information about an individual that I could then figure out that it was that individual, right? Okay. So that's one thing. Um, again, getting back to you can you can do an analysis either way on that particular section. Um, what the city's trying to uh, what the city clerk is trying to argue is that MFIPA says that personal information includes somebody's educational history or sorry employment history, right? So when you referred to Mr. Bennick, you criticized the appointment on the basis that he had been a police auxiliary officer. Well, that's a form of employment. And well, the city clerk, contrary to section two, or sorry, correction, contrary to section 72K of MFIPA, which requires her to provide reasons for her declaration that there had been a breach, for her declaration that Mr. Bennick's past employment history is private. Um, we have to presume, and this is unfortunate because we have no reasons, which is de facto a violation of MFIPA. We have to presume that she's trying to argue that this is employment history, therefore it is private. Um, and what actually makes this more weird is that, um, as you all know, police officers have to wear name badges. They have to identify themselves. So we're dealing with a type of employment where, firstly, the city talks about him being a police auxiliary officer. It's on the Hamilton Police website. This is something he publicly says. Yeah, exactly. We're not revealing that yeah. he has done some sort of role that he doesn't... Like, I, I'm trying to come up with a scenario where the employment history of a public official in such a position of power... Would be and clearly his employment history was one of the key reasons of which he was chosen to be on the police services board. It's entirely relevant. It's entirely a matter of the public record, frankly, already. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. And it's scrabbling for reasons to go after someone without any fair justification. So let's turn to another angle, which um, hopefully interests your readers. And please cut me off if I'm going <laughs> here. Uh, this is my area of interest. I studied administrative law um, when I was St. Clair Belfort Fellow at the University of Toronto. And apparently administrative law is an area that is difficult and doesn't draw a lot of interest. But for me, I was very happy <laughs> to take it. It was like my thing, right? Um, so we're also dealing with the charter issue here. So the Municipal Freedom of Information Protection and Privacy Act includes a clause that says a clerk can release information if it's in the public interest. It's the public interest override. One of its purposes is that no law can violate the charter. So you can't say in no circumstances shall, you, shall such thing be released. And we're actually dealing with a charter issue here. We're dealing with expressive activity by a marginalized community, the LGBTQ Advisory Committee. So what you have is political speech that represents these group of citizens expressing an opinion to their political body, which is council. Mm -hmm. And I know the city engaged in a charter analysis. Um, so when this goes to divisional court, this may, I don't think the divisional court has to go there because as I explained, like there's just so many violations of law here that this thing can be tossed on paragraph three where they have an established jurisdiction. But we're dealing with political speech. So 
at, when the clerk is declaring a breach of MFIPA, she actually has to go through the process of explaining why censoring the expression of this committee achieves a pressing and substantive objective of the municipality that restricting the speech is just justifiable in a democratic society. And again, and we could go for hours, so I don't want to go down this go down this path, but I will explain to people that the decision of an administrative decision maker, the clerk acting in her statutory authority, is usually measured by what's called reasonableness, not correctness. So when it goes in front of a judge for a review, the judge looks and goes, did you come to an outcome that is within the range of reasons available to you? Because there are issues that could, you could decide either way and be very reasonable. The courts are not to substitute their judgment. Now, dealing with the charter issue, they may decide to go with correctness, but let's presume that they were to do reasonableness. The clerk could reasonably try to argue that this speech identifies an individual who has been has ended their employment at the city of Hamilton. It appears that they got a package, that the city has a pressing and substantive objective that's justifiable in obeying by a legal agreement that it had made with this individual. That would be a scenario where the clerk could try to argue that it is necessary to, to infringe and restrict the speech of the committee here. So you get a sense of just how much of a mess this is. And what's fascinating is that council... It was well put. Um, the best way I can put it is that council didn't want their fingerprints on this. They wanted to try to say we're hands off. But yeah. this is a case where the law requires that you fingerprint decisions. So even the integrity commissioner's report doesn't have signatures on it. It's just this firm that says we has a firm issue. It That there is a violation. An administrative decision maker must identify themselves. And they must put their fingerprint right. And so this is an interesting thing where they, what I think council's ultimate motivation was they wanted to take a, they wanted to engage in silencing a critic. They wanted to have their fingerprints off of it. And because they were trying to not have their fingerprints on it, while they might not have put their fingerprints on the counter, they destroyed everything else in the shop around them. Mm -hmm. Whereas they fully have the right the advisory committee has no protection of law. It exists because council has decided to allow it to exist. Council could have simply said, you know what, we don't want to hear from you anymore. We're disbanding your committee. Goodbye. Yeah, I'm very familiar with this process. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just trying to pass the buck to, to someone else and say, well, we didn't do it, the integrity commissioner did. It's not just that. I mean, if you want to follow that line of thought, Joey, you know, it, it would have been easy if you just said, I don't want to hear from Cameron anymore. We vote to disband the committee. Instead, they use tax dollars to hire a firm and to give the firm instructions, go investigate Cameron and present us with a report. Like, like tax dollars have been spent on this process. That was a deliberate decision by council. I presume the discussion was done in camera before, but it's I find it's unnerving that the council made an act to let's go after this lone citizen to do this, as opposed to the politically savvy approach just would have been, we're just going to quietly disband your committee. Thank you for your service. Take care and good luck and walk away. I find it shocking that they said, no, let's go spend money to get this guy. 
the politically savvy approach is to do what they do to most people, which is just ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. So it was clearly seeing in pretty much every meeting of the council in the personal tweets and so on of council members, a highly aggressive approach to people they disagree with. Why do you think that is? What has made them go uh, this route? You know what? It's gone so far off the rails. And I've thought about this question a lot because, of course, as a journalist, you want to figure out what are people's motivations so that you can have a sense of what you're going to be covering. I have no explanation. These people are so far outside of political norms, outside of the law, that I can't, and because they're in camera all the time, like I can't figure out how they're winding each other up. Um, and I can tell you that in the mayor's office, the problem is, is that uh, Fred is very thin-skinned and his staff do not rein him in. In fact, they, they feed his preconceptions and make it worse. And the council, I, I believe, the most likely, I, if I'm going to give an explanation, which I am here, obviously, um, it's that they wind each other up. Like, they see conspiracies. They see citizen engagement as some sort of conspiracy. And you hear this. You hear this, like, this person, they're hinting at people during meetings that this person must be doing something. And right now, the person that they're focused on, that they're fixated on, is Kojo Damsey. And that's because Kojo is doing a great job of facilitating civic engagement. And I think this is one of the things that, um, because at City Hall, their, their philosophy is we need to stifle dissent. We need to stop people from speaking out. We need to bully them when they're delegating. That I don't think they understand that somebody like Kojo, who... Um, Coach Dempsey, who is the executive director of the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, is doing his job well in terms of facilitating civic engagement and civic inclusion. They should be delighted that someone like that or someone like yourself turns up with a camera and says, hey, let's, these are public meetings. We want as many people to see them as possible. When we think about democratic norms and ideals, yes. But let's face it, we all, uh, I'm sure that some of us enjoy working from home right now because we don't have people looking over our shoulders. We don't have a boss knowing what we're doing. We like that additional freedom and autonomy that results from working at home. And politicians have enjoyed for many years. Before my work, there were no reporters showing up to most meetings. In fact, we had a council meeting in 2012 where I was the only reporter at a full council ratification meeting. Um... And so they got used to being able to just work without public scrutiny and they became comfortable with it. Um, where they are wrong is how they've reacted to civic engagement. I don't, I think one of the things that they don't grasp and often people don't grasp is that I facilitate civic engagement that I disagree with because in a democracy we have to have that. And I'm a strong civil libertarian. Obviously, as a journalist, civil liberties are important to my work. And that mm -hmm. means that I often find myself defending the right of people to be disgusting. And I think that uh, in a democratic society, we've sort of lost that. And I understand why, because there is a polarization. And there are people that have views that are absolutely distasteful. And uh, I often, I go home and I'm uncomfortable with defending those views, but I understand the importance of the principle underneath. And this is the thing with the counselors is that civic engagement to them is a threat. 
It's a threat to their pensions. They need to be there to collect their pension plan, which has been, they increased it by 33%. You've heard Councilman Marula bragging that he's on his way out now that the pension maximizes at the end of this term. That's, and that's not why you're supposed to be on a council. I'll quickly, because I actually don't believe in municipal, I don't believe in municipal councillors having gold-plated pensions. But there is an argument to be made for some sort of retirement savings matching program as part of their compensation package, because you only need to look at politicians who left provincial politics, made a career out of it, who have no savings, right. no pension, who are holding up space at municipal councils. Aside from voting the current council out, is there anything in your mind that the average citizen can do to help hold their councillors accountable? Um, stay engaged, but the reality is, is that, as I said, this council has gone so far outside of democratic norms, so far outside of the Municipal Act, and just blatantly don't care about the norms of a democratic society that people are best to put their energy towards 2022. Um, continue to watch, continue to make sure that you, they know we're seeing what they're doing, but as much as possible, put your energy to 2022. And I think it's, yeah, it's going to be an interesting election, that's for sure. In some ways mirrors what I think happened in Burlington in 2018, where there was nothing like as bad by my standards. I thought it was appalling at the time, the, the behavior we were seeing from Burlington Council prior to 2018 and, and their aggressive attitude towards people who tried to engage with the city or people, I saw speeches calling People who turn up to delegate at a city meeting, it's not something anybody, the average person enjoys, who wants to do. And seeing them just insulted and um, and the election changed that. However, it seems to be a pattern. I think Hamilton has really gone to an extreme with this pattern, but this pattern of like defensiveness and, and almost, I'll show you, don't you dare question my opinion, seems to be something that somehow our municipal system brings out. I suspect that while I certainly hope Hamilton is not typical, that as we, uh, one of the things we want to do as a podcast is spread this kind of view of, of every council across the 905 region. I suspect we're going to find similar things, if not identical things. It's really a question for the future of like, how do we change this? It turns people off ultimately. Voters are just, it confirms every prejudice that people have about politicians and the political process and democracy. It's tough to say you're wrong. It's very tough to say you're wrong. And we all fall into this at times. I'm sure most people listening here have ended up on a Facebook argument or a mm -hmm. Twitter argument where they've walked away and said, did I really need to say that? I wish I never responded that way. Um, so there's a human fallibility involved. Now, again, these guys have gone way beyond where I could, but I want people to understand that that happens. And I often explain to journalism students because I don't use the term clarification. I don't, I either am, I correct, right? A correction here. This was not clear. I'll say, but it's a correction. I don't get into that game. When I, when I make a mistake, I own it as quickly as I can. The analogy I use for, for young journalists, and I learned this the hard way when I was working for McLean's. I made a mistake and I was resistant to admitting it, told our lawyer at McLean said, I can't defend this, Joey. You're going to have to apologize. 
And of course, we did the apology at 8 p.m. on the website, and then we buried it by 10 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> but, uh, so I say that I've made these errors. I speak not because I am some sort of smart person. I'm just an experienced person who remains uh, not as dumb as I used to be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think experience that when you've screwed up, when you've made an error, the quicker you correct it, the better, and you control where the sword falls in you. That if somebody else is going to sword you, they could hit a vital organ. Whereas if you sword yourself, you can cut through, you're going to be in pain, it's going to suck, and there might even be a scar, and there'll be all kinds of blood, but you will not, it will not be fatal. And I know that's a very gory image that I've just given people, but that's how it feels. When you have to publicly admit that you've made a mistake, it it's very painful. And I've learned that the hard way. And, you know, there are times where that sort of instinct to go, I want to argue this. I don't want to admit I was wrong, kick in. And I'll take a walk and then I'll come back and go, yeah, I was wrong. And my rule is, is that once you've hit that gray area where you are not sure if you were right, it's time to step back, figure out what you did wrong. And I write long corrections. I explain how I make mistakes. And you know what? Sometimes I've ended my, mis my corrections by going, you know what? There's not a way for me to set up a system that prevents this because I'm human and there's just going to be times where I am stupid. I don't use the term stupid. I use a much more elegant term. But there's going to be times where I just make a mistake. I end up following a bunch of wrong assumptions and from there. And that's hard. It's hard for politicians to do. And I think I'm actually quite hopeful, I'll say to people that I... So as St. Clair Belfer Fellow at the University of Toronto, it's a one of the top journalism awards in the country. It's very competitive. But one of the great things about it is that you're a fellow at large. And the way I explain fellow at large is that we're everything but nothing at the same time. So for the students, I may be taking classes, but I'm also a staff member somewhat um, of a lecturer, and I actually lectured in a few classes. I'm a mentor, and I got the chance to meet with young people, have dinner with young people, and I'm really hopeful that our young people care a lot about democratic norms. They care a lot about being kind to each other, but also engaging in great debate. And they do so not on social media, but they do so around the, the coffees that I would have on Sunday when I opened my office and I just said to the grad students, come on by for coffee and tea. We're phenomenal. So I'm very hopeful as we move forward that we're going to be a better society. It's going to take time. I mean, this polarization that we're seeing is not yet done, but the hangover that's coming from it, I think people are actually going to, you know, step back, think about how we do things and not go back to polarization because this is going to be one heck of a hangover in the next couple, next couple of years. Absolutely. I think that's probably a good way to end it with a very hopeful message. Um, and I, I too hope that, that out of this really unpleasant era in our history, some good will come of it. You know, we used to speak about apathy and I, I'm not sure that people are so apathetic anymore. We're getting the message that this stuff matters and we need to be paying attention and we need to hold people to account and people need to be willing to be held to account much more than they were in the past. Well, I'll say thank you very much, Joey, for coming on and giving us your valuable time. And we'll be staying on top of the story as it develops. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, we'd like to thank Joey Coleman for coming on and giving his valuable time to uh, this episode. His 
his interview was enlightening, and I think it speaks for itself, as well as uh, Mr. Cameron Crutch's interview earlier this week. Uh, we very much appreciate them taking the time to come on and talk with us uh, here on the 905er. Yeah, we really appreciate uh, both both of uh, Cameron and uh, Joey coming on and spending so much time. Uh, this is a fascinating story. Um, it goes to the heart of the way that our municipalities operate and certainly some of the things I feel that happen too often in our local government, partly because so few people pay attention to what's going on in local government. So it's literally a matter of people who've been around for a few terms being being kind of feeling that they can get away with stuff that maybe they shouldn't be able to. And well, I'd really like to know the experience of people in other cities across the 905 because my my limited experience of of, uh, a few cities suggests that while what we've been talking about in the last two episodes is is quite extreme, in my opinion, it's maybe not uh, unheard of in other locations. No, I I agree with your your assessment there. I think part of the problem is uh, not to toot our own horn too loudly here, but there there is a I think a lack of serious coverage of municipal politics, uh, and in that void, uh, it's easy for people to get away with stuff that they they really should not be. And I, I don't think we're talking anything uh, egregious here, other than just kind of common decency in dealing with with other human beings. Um, you know, to, the simple simple courtesies that we were all raised on of just, you know, thank you, please, thank you, and and uh, mind your tongue if you don't have anything nice to say uh, is really what, we're, what it boils down to. I, I believe strongly that elected people should be reminded who's at the top of the food chain and who's at the bottom. And the politicians are actually at the bottom. They're the employees. Uh, they work for us. Um, and I feel that sometimes the airs and graces, for want of a better word, that, that are given to elected people, you know, we, we refer to them as counselor this and your grace is, a, no, your worship is, is, I've heard people call the mayor that, which is incredibly antiquated. These kind of respectful terms are, are all very well, but when you start seeing counselors, as I've seen so many times, have this attitude of, of how dare you when it comes to the public? How dare you disagree with me? How dare you question my opinions? I, I know so much more than you do. I don't care if you know more than I do. I still employ you, and you you serve at my pleasure. Uh, and I, I think it's incumbent on anybody who who uh, receives votes uh, as as their qualification for employment uh, to remember that. Uh, but but it's you know uh, a job on a council has traditionally been a job for as long as you want to keep it. Um, that's not. That's changing, I think, but um, well, we hope it that does. has been the case with well, with initiatives in Burlington as well as Mississauga uh, to move to a ranked ballot system. I, I mean, we've spoken before with Dave Meslin on this up on the show a few episodes ago about the those initiatives and how transformative they can be uh, to put more authority and a, a bit more accountability back in the hands of us, the people, and to make these politicians and these blowhards uh, have to work to earn our trust again and have to justify the decisions that they make while in council. Absolutely. And, you know, again, I apologize if I'm, if I'm repeating myself from earlier weeks, but I'm going to because it's such an important point. The, the common attitude of the public to democracy in the Western world right now is 
extremely dangerous. You know, we're, we're coming up to an election in the states where we don't even know for sure that that one candidate will accept accept the result of of, of the voters. Um, the feeling of they're all the same, they're all crooks, they're all bums. That's been created by the politicians, even though very often they're not crooks and they're not bums. They're just kind of human. Uh, but unless you change the procedures that that surround politicians, the, these views will continue to to worsen, uh, and it's dangerous. You know, democracy is not very old. My mother was born in in a, in a world where where only men were allowed to vote, so there was no democracy. We, we I think we've grown up. Some of us, certainly in my generation, grew up spoiled, thinking that the, the democratic society was kind of this indestructible thing. It's made uh, up and that it was a perfect system, you know. It's, and it's, it's made it, up of, of us, the people, and we get what we elect. I think the lesson uh, that we've seen south of the border is that that's the the axiom we have to take going forward. If you accept that your leaders can be buffoons, that they can use, they can call names, they can threaten, they can abuse their power in this way against other people. They eventually they will come for you because they're, they're, you will say something that, that that upsets them that they don't like. And if we accept that that's just the way it is, things aren't going to get better. But the great thing about a democracy is that it can get better. We can use our power. We can organize. We're not alone, and we can say we can demand better. We don't we don't need to talk about overhauling and you know, overhauling the system and revolution. We're talking about just demanding simple respect and decency from our elected officials. We can have a difference of, a, of opinion, differing policies. We can have politicians that feel adamant or are very passionate about various topics, and that's good. That's a good thing for democracy. We want that in our leaders. What we need to demand, though, is we didn't put a line in the sand and say, this is, you can't cross this line. This is how we expect you to act. You must treat us all with civility and decency. And in return, we treat you with the same courtesy and respect. When that when that trust is broken, then we need to take action. And luckily for us, we the voter, we have the ballot box. And you know what? It's I think it's the greatest weapon any citizen can have to to invoke change. Absolutely, uh, Ed. But it, it the ballot box is the starting point, not the ending point. It's it's uh, and I think that's something that we that we need to change uh, our way of thinking. We don't go and vote once every four years. We vote once every four years, and then we go and have a voice at city hall, or, or we take part online in a. In a there are, there's so many ways that that we, institutions we, should be encouraging us to do, which they we don't. Go, we go right now. We go to LGBTQ advisory committees and give our opinion on how to f- how to fix a relationship between city hall and a minority community. We go march in Black Lives Matter marches uh, to show our support for injustice. Uh, sorry, our, our not our support, but our, our support for reforms uh, to address injustice and and to invoke change that way. It's Democracy is not a once every four year action. It's not a to-do list. It's something that we must engage in every day, every week, every year of our lives. And just put a little compassion, a little empathy into your actions, and the the results will come back tenfold. I firmly believe that. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I completely agree. Um, hopefully, we're, we're 
going to see that change. So, you know, hopefully this is, this is out of this kind of miserable time in our history uh, is going to come um, uh, something better because people realize how important it is. Um, uh, let's hope so. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this week, folks. Thank you for listening to this very special two-part episode of the Dino Fiver. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, thoughts, or concerns, especially about this episode, we definitely want to hear from you. Uh, please email us at info at 905.ca. And if you hear of any like-minded stories uh, in your neck of the woods outside of Hamilton, please email us. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you and take a look at what's happening outside of Hamilton. Uh, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Look for 905er on all those uh, apps and we'll be there. And last but not least, please get rate us five stars on whatever app you're listening to us on. It helps us with our rankings and helps us uh, distribute to more people. Thanks very much, everyone, and we'll talk with you next week. Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com.